Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Yes, yes. Welcome in to questions from the audience on the Tim McKernan Show live from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. I'm your host, Timothy Michael McKernan, the studios in my basement. The questions come in anytime you want, anytime. I'm intoxicated on a Friday night. Send them. Perfect time to do it. T. McKernan at InsideSTL.com. They come in throughout the week or are posted on the TMA fan page. They can be about anything. I feel like uh, there's usually a couple about politics. There's usually a couple about sports. There's usually a couple about the radio show. And everything is welcome anytime. Tim McKernan at InsideSTL.com. It is the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. Uh, uh, some focus this year, or excuse me, this week um, on our guest this week, which uh, which is getting a lot of attention, which is good, because as I said, um, if you haven't had a chance to listen, I would really recommend listening to Anthony Bartlett, presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. Anthony founded St. Louis Transplants, and he was, uh, I guess, a guest columnist, or he was interviewed in St. Louis Magazine on October 22nd, 2019, and that column Got a great deal of attention because he spoke to one of the issues that uh, St. Louis has had with people moving from other parts of the country or world here and feeling like outsiders. And, um, and some of the things that St. Louis has been battling. And, uh, and I just, it was one of those interviews where I could have gone on for forever with him because, uh, it's a topic that I've that in getting the feedback from the interview, clearly a lot of people in the region care about. But he's uh, so insightful and backed with uh, uh, a lot of not only statistical data but also data based on experiences from talking with not only people but companies about moving here. A uh, lot of feedback, and uh, it was greatly uh, valued. and um, And I think I'd like to have Anthony back on just to uh, to continue the discussion. So that conversation has led to a number of emails, and that conversation hasn't even been up 24 hours as I sit here on Monday and record this. Um, and so I'll start with that because um, that is the topic of the day. Uh, and this comes from uh, Justin. I moved to St. Charles. I don't know. This was a different one. That's a different one. Uh, let's see, James, I apologize. 
Tim, I really appreciate the segment you did about people who move here from out of town. My wife and I are not from here and moved here four years ago. Making friends has been incredibly hard. I've always had close friends wherever I've lived, and I've never had trouble making friends in my life until I moved here. After four years, I still barely have any friends to speak of. It's absolutely brutal, and I find myself wishing every single day that we could leave here and get back to where friends and family are. It's just hard because law is not a profession that lends itself to moving very easily. Anyway, it's nice to know I'm not the only person who has dealt with this. I hope this is something people from St. Louis pay attention to. I don't fully blame them. I get that they still have close friends from high school and growing up here and quite frankly have no incentive to go out of that comfort zone and be overly welcoming. I just hate that it's like that. It really takes its toll feeling lonely and without friends all of the time. I'm going to check out uh, the entirety of the podcast now for sure. Uh, Anthony Bartlett sounds incredibly sharp, and from what you read, he has diagnosed a lot of the issues pretty well. Thanks for the great radio every day. It's usually the best part of my day. It comes from James. I feel terribly for James. James sounds like he's having a, you know, uh, when we were talking about this issue, I didn't think it was necessarily to to this um, extent, personalizing it, individualizing it, but uh, my God, um, he's, he's really... Uh, struggling with it. So here's the broader premise, because I realize not everybody has listened to the interview. And even if you have listened to the interview, I can give you my perspective on it. And I think it's, I think it's actually twofold. Number one, where Anthony's coming from is the founder of St. Louis Transplants in 2010, um, is that St. Louisans have this circle that James references, because 70% of people who live in the St. Louis metropolitan area grew up in the St. Louis metropolitan area. Whereas if you were to get the breakdown of natives in take your pick of whatever um, well-known large coastal city, um, it would actually be inverse. It would be 30% of the people living there now grew up there. In other words, 70% are transplants. So it's a lot easier for people to, um, you know, crack the nut, so to speak, of those particular regions. Um, and so this is something I've been observing for a while. And so when I read his column, I immediately texted Iggy and I said, see if we can get Anthony to come in. And he was he was in within a few days, which was great, which led to the interview that's up this week. Um, the other side of it is, and I think I've been talking about this maybe more, but I've talked about both over the years on the radio, is that Oftentimes, St. Louis produces an incredibly large amount of talented people. And take your pick of whatever field. I mean, it's not limited to, I don't even know where you would be, what, what, what pops into your head right away. Um, but I would tell you that it's, it's diverse um, and it's not limited to any particular field. I mean, certainly right now, if you want to go into sports, you would say, look what's going on with hockey. But I'm talking about business. I'm talking about arts. Um, and so along those, in addition to athletics, so along those lines, with regard to business in particular, what I saw in the late 1990s and what I continued to see in the early 2000s and from what I'm hearing from now parents who are a little older than me but have kids 
um, who are in college or about to graduate from college or just did graduate from college is that I always use this term and I don't know if it's if it, it comes off the wrong way because many of you listening would be people living in St. Louis and it's like, oh, we're not in that category and I'm talking about myself here too. I don't know how to... Many of the people who have um, uh, what I would describe as um, a lot to bring to the table, the phrase I use is best and brightest and I, I don't, I'd like to find a better term because it makes it sound like the rest of us are not the best of us, but uh, have zero interest in living in St. Louis once they graduate college. And so St. Louis is becoming or has been uh, a farm team for a healthy percentage of the population. And then those people go on to live in certainly Chicago would be number one. Um, But other cities, uh, not necessarily L.A. or New York, but not, of course, uh, that those are excluded. But Chicago would certainly be um, the prime example, along with Denver recently. Um, and, uh, and, uh, Dallas, uh, Nashville now. Uh, so that's another issue. It's welcoming transplants, but then also it's kind of like being a college football coach wanting to seal the border, so to speak. So you have that element and Anthony and I got into that discussion with, with regard to though, something that, that isn't really, well, I mean, I guess it does have economic impact. It's just kind of a um, part of it, uh, James's email. And by that, I mean, if people don't feel comfortable here, they're not going to want to move here, which is one of Anthony's, uh, responsibilities he's taken on with his company, St. Louis transplants. Um, I don't know. I, like I always thought I would say, yeah, my friends are in 2019 are for the most part, um, my friends in 1999. And I would say that, um, in part, I don't know. I don't know why I would say, I, I, I know I thought it was a good thing and I still think it's a good thing. I'm not like changing my opinion on it now, but, uh, that, um, it, it just, you know, uh, just because one gets into a different, uh, business, um, you know, it doesn't mean he or she is now like, oh, now I've got to start running with a certain circle. Like these are, you know, these are the, the people I have been hanging out with forever. I enjoy it. And that's what makes me happy. And if I lived in anywhere but St. Louis, I wouldn't have that luxury. And since so many of us still live here, as again is one of the data points that Anthony brings up with the 70% of the populations made up of natives, we're able to do that. Whereas for some of my friends who did move from St. Louis after college in particular, I will see them, you know, around Thanksgiving or around Christmas. Um, and that's how that process winds up working out. But what his point is, is that St. Louisans are proud of the city, but we're not really welcoming. Um, and I want to make it clear that we're not saying people are unfriendly. If anything, people are really friendly, but are just in a certain style of um, socialization and that is with the people we know and so it is not standard to meet new people who become new friends when they're not from our circle of course there are exceptions so you know I want to make that clear but 
that's the premise. And I guess that's where James is coming from. But James, James's email, like read like an Edgar Allan Poe poem. I mean, that was that was that was emotional. That was that was a little more extreme than I had anticipated. Um, he's not the only person who has written or texted in to the radio show um, today. And again, this interview's not even been up 24 hours. Um, so it, it's certainly resonating. And a number, and the other thing that, it, and maybe I have this, because uh, I feel like there's a few that I was going to read on, on this podcast today, but I know one I received was, it's not necessarily just the people who aren't from St. Louis, it's people who are from St. Louis who want to move back, but then their spouses who aren't from St. Louis are very resistant to it. Um, so that's another fight, so to speak. But it speaks to the thing that I think if, if you're making a headline from the interview with Anthony, it's that the perception of St. Louis around the country and for those who are aware of it around the world, um, because he'll speak with both domestic and foreign businesses interested in relocating to St. Louis, is one of crime. And um, he, he said he likes to describe St. Louis to people who are not familiar with it, haven't been here as a cross between Boston and New Orleans. I had never heard that before. I actually kind of think there's something to it. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in Boston. I think I've been there like three or four times, um, but uh, but not like for weeks on end or anything. And I have been in New Orleans more, um, and, and, I, and I like that. I like, I like that analogy. I think it's a compliment, so that's probably one of the reasons why I like it. But um, I think what he's trying to convey is, is this city has, you know, it has some history and uh, good history and culture, but it is kind of portrayed at the moment, and, the per- and therefore there is your perception, that it is, um, that it, whether it be about crime, which I'm not saying is inaccurate, but that's the focus, um, and uh, and as he said, that it's, people are surprised when they get here who've never been here before, and he picks them up at the airport. How big the city is! Now, if you look at the population of the city proper, as in the city itself, it's not big. But if you include the metropolitan area, it's it's one of the largest in the country, and so that's something that surprises people. And something from the St. Louis side, I would say, is. Um, you know, for those of us who grew up here and still live here, uh, there's a thought process that we um, that this is the end all be all. And I'm not saying that to, to mock. I, I, I'm I don't know if guilty is the right word to use, but I know I've thought that way. Um, and then, like I said, I was saying this on the radio show this morning, uh, a friend of mine um, who had lived, uh, overseas, but then also lived in a variety of cities throughout the country. And I remember him coming back to St. Louis and he goes, St. Louisans have no idea how small St. Louis is because more often than not, St. Louisans don't travel to the biggest cities. Um, so it's like anytime we'll get into a discussion about stadiums or going to different, it's like, yeah, I've been to Kansas city and I've been to Chicago, which Chicago is obviously a huge city. But the first time I flew into New York, first off, I didn't get on a plane until I was 21, which was bizarre. But my mom was on a plane when she was pregnant with me with a bomb scare. And so that was the end of us flying. Um, 
And so it took until uh, 97, for real, like I just turned 21, which is just nuts. But that's what it was. And so I'd never been to New York City until 2000. I remember my friends saying, people think, you know, think of St. Louis as downtown, the skyline. You know, it's a beautiful skyline. It's a signature skyline coming from the east. But you, you've, you see, you fly into Manhattan, you fly into New York for the first time, and as you're flying past Manhattan, it's like, 50 St. Louis's and I actually think it might be bigger than that and you just don't and you don't realize I mean you just it's 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 foreign um and then you have a number of cities that aren't of course as big as what you have with Manhattan and the surrounding boroughs but um that are just much bigger and so what I like when I think about the potential for growth in St. Louis, which I think is happening and is going to continue to happen, and I'm bullish on St. Louis, is young people wanting to move here, which is a theme uh, throughout our conversation, Anthony and my conversation, um, and using some of the influences from the people from around the country to help with St. Louis. Um, And as I also spoke to, uh, I, I feel like, one of the things that we're lacking is, um, and I've said this a couple of times, is is somebody who people turn to and buy into as far as a leader. And this person doesn't necessarily have to be somebody in office, although I suppose it would help. I felt like we had that, um, potentially anyway, with Mark Bonavani. And that's why that election was so disappointing. I mean, I, I realize now it's kind of like, well, obviously it was with what's transpired with Steve Stanger. But um, you had somebody, and it wasn't like radical change, and it wasn't somebody who's like, okay, I'm going to play a large role in turning around St. Louis County, and then I'm going to go run for governor or senator or something like that. He just wanted to take care of St. Louis County and St. Louis County executive, and that was it. I mean, he's, you know... You know, he's had a great deal of success in uh, in the business world, and so he felt like that's something he could lend itself to and lend his talents to, and that was disappointing, especially how close it was. So, uh, with that all with that all said, um, I loved the conversation with Anthony, and I really do recommend it. And, and it, clearly, it's um, getting reaction, but not because people are mad about it if anything people are like man it was great to hear that and I think a theme you continue to hear is this there's a recognition for as much as we're we can be self-deprecating there's a recognition that we have something here there's also recognition that there are problems here but it's just I, I sense it's a different time than it was even 10 years ago but certainly 20 years ago um where I think people just thought, oh, you know, we were great in the 60s and we're just going to run on that legacy because we didn't know any better. Now there's a recognition that there are issues, but there's also a recognition of um, a desire and real potential for change and improvement. And that's why I continue to say I'm bullish on it. And the other element of that is uh, something that we spoke about and Anthony pointed out, uh, and that is that um, you have... Uh, people who have wanted to live on the coast, and now it's just so damn expensive that it's just not realistic. Uh, and and that is why, uh, because it's so expensive. And so people are going, okay, I, I want to live and live comfortably, and I can't, you know, I can't, unless I'm making X amount of dollars, I can't live here. Um, and so it's an opportunity 
So that's another part of this where I just think the climate is is right for St. Louis. I really do. Uh, let's see. So this is this is somewhat along those lines. This is what I was reading initially. Um, I moved to St. Charles from East Central Illinois. So East Central Illinois. Okay. Uh, in 2008, I've worked all over the Metro St. Louis area since then. I love living in the St. Charles area. That being said, what's up with all the hate St. Charles County gets from people in St. Louis City and County? I've seen multiple posts on the fan page and elsewhere about how terrible St. Charles is, and I don't get it. Are people jealous? I don't think that's it. Uh, is it perceived as backwater Hoosier land by people that dare not cross the river to come here? Is there something I'm missing because I wasn't born and raised here? That's from Justin. Uh, I do not think it's jealousy at all. Uh, I don't uh, think it's perceived as backwater Hoosier either. I think, and this kind of speaks to the the first uh, question, that St. Louis being... Um, with as many people living here who aren't from here have just kind of running jokes. It's like joking about high school. Whereas if you went to, you know, take your pick of whatever large city and you mention a high school, most people are like, oh, okay, whatever. Here, it quote unquote, quote unquote, means something as in, oh, you went to this high school, therefore you're from this area and therefore I will apply that stereotype to you. Ideally in a joking manner. Um, but that's, it's just kind of like, like what area, I, I wish this were a live interactive program right now and I could have, uh, somebody text in areas, what area wouldn't come with some kind of like joking negative stereotype if you wanted to play that game? Um, you know, so like me, South city, Hoosier, Tim's a Hoosier boy. Yeah, totally fine. Uh, it's just kind of, it's kind of the running joke yet, you know, if, I'd like to think that most people, I realize if you've resided in Huntley or Ladue all your life, probably wouldn't necessarily think so. But I think most people would, uh, go down to the, the neighborhood I grew up in and my parents still live in and they wouldn't consider it to be Hoosier, but it's just one of those things. People don't spend time there. They just kind of joke about it. That's what it is. So with the St. Charles thing. It's just like joking about South County, joking about South City, um, North County. Take your pick. It's just one of those things. Okay, so now you live in Chesterfield. Oh, you're a snob. You know, all right. You live in uh, Ladue. Oh, you're rich and a snob. So that's kind of it. So I don't. That that's how I. Uh, that's how I look at it. Um, I don't think there's hatred for St. Charles. I don't. I, I haven't seen that. Uh, if we're talking about on the fan page, um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's a case of jealousy. I don't think it's a case of hatred. Uh, you know, I just think it's people have their little areas they like, and you know, rarely, rarely. That's another thing, actually, lending itself to the the be, the beginning of the podcast. Do you have people move in St. Louis for significantly from like if they grew up in South County, they're probably not going to suddenly move to U-City. Um, I mean, my neighborhood, and it's one of the reasons I actually love it. I'm talking about when I'm saying that's the weird thing. I haven't lived in quote unquote my neighborhood since like, you know. I don't know. I guess I stayed in my parents' basement right when I came for, back from Little Rock and worked at KMOV. But I haven't really lived in my neighborhood uh, since 2001. 
but I still call it my neighborhood, uh, which is another thing, tells you plenty. Um, many of the people, when I go back there, I see the same people I saw 30 years ago, and I personally love that. You know, I was watching, there's a uh, special on HBO called The Bronx, a documentary. I guess it was a documentary. I don't know. It was kind of a combination of, uh, of documentary and um, the gentleman who produced Seinfeld um, went back to the Bronx for the first time in a long time and was kind of showing what it was like when he was growing up there and, and what it's like now. And um, But either way, uh, that's one of the things that I love about it, like the neighborhood elements, what he talked about. So Chaz Palminteri, who was interviewed in that thing, was talking about the neighborhood element of it. And I like that. Um, you know, I love where we live now and Kirk would love it. I'd be surprised, assuming we stay in St. Louis, if we would move um, from Kirkwood, um, just like Kirkwood. But uh, it's not like a neighborhood like like where I grew up. Um, I don't think there are many left, which was kind of the theme of that Brox documentary on uh, an HBO, which I do believe is just simply called The Bronx in case you wanted to watch it. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Ryan Kelly's the home loan expert, and he is the sponsor of our studios here on the Tim McKernan Show. Without him, we don't have a podcast, so make sure you're supporting our sponsor, Ryan Kelly, thehomeloanexpert.com. And with interest rates dropping and this being home buying season, this is a prime time to get in and get yourself a great rate and lock in. Or if you want to refinance, now's the time to do so. Ryan Kelly's the person to do it with. He is online at thehomeloanexpert.com. Ryan Kelly, the studio sponsor of this program. Ryan Kelly, thehomeloanexpert.com. Tim, I've only been a listener since July. So if this concept has been brought up before, then I would like to apologize. Would you consider having Anna Marie, Anna Marie's my wife, on the podcast to interview her? The subject could be anything, and I'm sure it would be a popular podcast. You could even have a cuck-style interview and have someone interview her with you in the room, unable to respond to her answers. Wow, that is... At first, I'm kind of like, okay, well, people have asked about having my dad on in particular. Um, And I'm like, okay, so I guess we'll go along those lines with having my wife on. And then it got kind of uh, interesting there with the final sentence. Um, where not only am I not the one conducting the interview, but I'm sitting in the corner and I'm not allowed to respond. (laughs) Uh, So with regard, my dad having my dad on, which first off, I don't even know if he'd want to do it. We haven't talked about it. And then secondly, I feel like we'll both wind up weeping uncontrollably and it will be incredibly awkward. Um, Maybe we wouldn't. I think about my having my dad on just because he's kind of um, like gained some kind of um, legend status in the sense of uh, a character of some capacity because my dad gets me all my jobs and my dad owns the parking lot and the station and you know all those the jokes on TMA um, and I think that's why TMA people would like to hear from him uh, for people who know him. I think they know that he is a much more fascinating and likable character than I am, and I think that's why they'd like to hear him on. Um, so that might happen. Having my wife on, I don't know. I just like I is a Stern fan, and it's not like I'm not like angry about it by any means. I always felt like when Howard has or has had his wife Beth in, 
I don't know. I just, I feel like it's kind of like you can't, you know, it's like, it's like mob rules, like the, the wives and the kids are off limits. And so, you know, even though it's not like people would be like, oh good, I, here's my chance to, to rip uh, Tim's wife. I mean, it's, it would be a podcast. I'm now bringing her into the, the reindeer games. So I don't know. That just, it doesn't feel good. It's kind of like, so like when Stern would have uh, Beth on, it'd be like, everybody's kind of their best behavior and the show's kind of coming to a halt. So that's not necessarily something I'd want to do. Uh, you know, I don't know. Also, it's the first time it's ever been asked, not to say it's wrong because it's the first time, but I don't know if there's a real uh, interest in that. Having my dad on, that certainly is something that um, that people have asked about, and maybe I'll do. Part of it is, honestly, it's just like we'll always have that. You know, I think that's why, like, I wanted to have Jay Randolph Sr. on. It's, it's one of my favorite ones we've done in the two years we've been doing this thing. But Jay Jr. was so, I don't know how many times he thanked me and how grateful he was. Um, so that we had him on, which I'm like, man, it's an honor. So, uh, you know, I, he, but I think what he was thinking, not even thinking, he said it. That's why it popped into my head, which made me then think about when people would ask about me having my dad on was that he'll always have that. And, you know, that, that, that means something that means something to the, the kids as in the sons and daughters, spouses, grandchildren, more importantly, like I would love it, love it, love it. Maybe this is something I'll do. It, it, like I just if people want me to do it, just interview their their loved ones, and then you always have it. Uh, I love interviews. It doesn't like I don't have to be sitting with somebody who's you know in the Hall of Fame or something like that. I just love. I just I'm fascinated by people's lives. So that's why I love doing interviews. Um, but I would love it if I had an interview with. Like my dad's dad, who died when my dad was 16, died of a heart attack, uh, like in his mid-50s, uh, just dropped dead. He was a dentist, and he just dropped dead. Um, and although um, I certainly knew my mom's father well, um, you know, he's been gone longer than I've been alive now. He died in 96, so it's been... 23 years and I was really close to him and he was kind of uh quiet um but I was I don't know I just really admired him um the way he carried himself uh got me into golf he was a great golfer um and uh and just was a good man and I would love it if I could just go hit play and listen to his voice, but then learn about him, you know, you know, I know him as my, my grandpa, both of these guys. I, I mean, I obviously never got to know my dad's dad, but, um, that interests me. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe people are interested in me doing it. I don't know. I, I, I do that. Maybe we just came up with something here because that was something that like I was, I, I just looked at Jay Randolph senior as a guy I wanted to interview, even if I didn't know Jay Randolph jr. He's got this incredible career and this life story. Um, but Jay Jr. was so 
excited about it because I think in part he was always going to have that. Like it was his, it was kind of like a, this is your life. And so you have these, this is your life, that show from years and years ago. Um, but it was, you know, with celebrities. Well, I just, I'd love to just listen to people's life stories, ask them about it. And then if the people, you know, want to, uh, to have people, you know, to be able to, to listen to it themselves, they always will have that for, and, you know, for themselves, but also for their kids and then their kids, kids, God, how, I mean, how fucking great would it be? Like if you could listen to the life stories of your, you know, grandmother, grandfather, great grandmother, great grandfather, the stories. And then also gives you some historical perspective. You know, I mean, we can sit here and talk about, you know, whatever, the things that, that, that went on and, you know, 69, let's talk about Woodstock, man landing on the moon, 63, JFK. What was it like in the United States during World War II? You know, those, I'd be enamored with that, much less life experiences and perspectives. That's the thing. That's what, so, so often these conversations on the podcast, people go, man, that was a great interview. And I'm, listen, I love it. I mean, when you're, when you're an on-air talent, your ego is constantly hungry. It's just the nature of the beast. However, I think I have enough self-awareness to be aware that I'm just asking essentially questions that I think anybody in a conversation would ask. So I don't really think I'm doing anything special. Um, I'm just interested. And it doesn't have to be a case of, oh, well, this person was in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, they're good enough to be in. Uh, I just like good, good story. Like, uh, kind of obscure. But ran into somebody who um, I've known for a while. Um, and at the gym, I think it was last week. And we were just bullshitting. And he told me about, uh, I said, what are you up to? And he told me what he'd done. He'd come up with this new business. And it sounded like it was taking off. And I just kept asking him questions. And he's like, dude, I'm sure you got other things to do. I'm like, no, I'm not being polite. I'm truly curious. It's me and him over by the fucking treadmills. But I'm legitimately curious. Um, because, and not just about, not necessarily about the business per se, although I recognized from what he was telling me that he had something, but more about anybody who takes a shot. And by that, I mean an entrepreneur. And, and, and the risk and the thought process and that moment where you go, okay, shit, I know this is going to be tough, but you know what? I think I got something. I'm going to do it. You know, family reactions, family support, family pushback, how it impacts your personal life, the, the struggles, and ideally the success those are the things. So you add that in along with historical references. I don't know. I'm, I'm all in. That's, that's the stuff I could do. That's, that's why I think people come in to do interviews a lot, or even when we just have them on the phone, they're like, okay, this will be 20 minutes or whatever, and I'll be gone. And then the next thing you know, they look up the clock, and they're like, holy shit, we're not even like halfway through, and we're 45 minutes in. But that's because I'm just, I'm, I get enamored. I don't know if it's a flaw. Um, I don't know. I just know that's where I am. I love to talk, but I actually, when it comes to the interviews, I love to just listen more. You know, I listen to these podcasts, um, and I get irritated with the podcasts where the host starts like telling the guest all these stories about the host. And don't get me wrong; I mean, my God, if, if you're doing a power ranking on 
uh, egos. I've got to be, I've got to be near the top, but, um, you know, I also know my, my place. And when we're interviewing people now, if it's a conversation with like, you know, my peers, that's one thing. But if somebody's in, it's like, guess the last thing. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about the time that I was, you know, one under going into number 16 or what, you know, I mean, who the fuck cares? I'll save that for questions from the audience. When somebody asks about golf, you know, like the, it's, I just think, what the fuck? But maybe, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Beats the shit out of me. My point is this. The question was, would I have Anna Marie on? Probably not. Who knows? Maybe I would. I don't know. The one, if I'm going to go family, it would be my dad. I, like I said, I really, I don't, I just, I mean, I guess the nice thing is it's not like a live radio interview. If it, if, if all of a sudden it, it turns into, you know, uh, you know, Dick Vermeil, you know, at the podium, you know, and it just doesn't go well. Well, it doesn't have to see the light of day. And I can just have it for, for my son and for uh, my brother's kids and maybe for their kids. I mean, how great would it be? I'm telling you, this just hit me. This is discovering idea while on the podcast. Like if somebody said, I have this interview with your grandfather, either one of my grandfathers, or my grandmas, all of them are gone now. And I could just sit and listen to that right now. Oh, be the greatest. Be the greatest. Or even an interview with, you know, somebody who's still around, but they're going through something at this particular moment. You want to, you want to be able, it's like time, it's like a journal. It's like a diary entry, except, you know, you're not sitting down to write it. You have somebody conducting a conversation I don't know I'm kind of into this I just because because like I'm sitting here thinking you know I, I I scour podcasts for interviews that will just I, I leave the interview either just like holy shit I can't believe what I just heard or like inspired and I love them I can't get enough of them I mean I'm who's I listening to God, I'm, it's probably up on my phone right now I'm certainly listening to Conan and Zach Galifianakis recently um, um, just pull it up on my phone here just out of curiosity because I always like to try to recommend oh Edward Norton on with Joe Rogan I guess Norton's doing this uh, this press tour and so he was on what was he on he's on Rogan and one of the other ones I subscribed to oh uh, Rogan and um, Mark Marin. I chose the Rogan one um, and it was a, such a good conversation you know, it gave his history, but then it weaved in current stuff. They had a really good discussion on Howard Stern. Of course, I loved that. Um, so I don't know, man. I love that stuff. But one of the things they talked about was with regard to Stern is that without him and what he did, in particular with Sirius, but also he would do like the hour-long segments when he was doing terrestrial radio, podcasting probably... I don't want to say it wouldn't have been born. That would be ridiculous. But does not have a lot of the caliber of long-form interviews it has now. It let people know that even in what is certainly a shorter attention span society with social media, that there is absolutely a market for long-form conversation. And I always knew there were, there was, but it wasn't really being provided outside of uh, Stern's interviews and some of these interview shows. But um, I don't know, man. I, so I, if somebody said you got an hour and a half with your grandfather, uh, I'd be like, I'm in. 
or an hour and a half, and so it doesn't have to be somebody who's passed away. Uh, an hour and a half with your dad in in the nineteen eighties, you know, I'd love that. I don't know. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. Send me your people you want me to uh, interview who are not celebrities, and I'm in. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it as a do it as a, another because uh, I could sit there and say you got you got three interviews today and here's the here's the backstory and they come in and I don't have to know them let's ask questions and now you have the uh, and now you the relative has the uh, <laughs> has it forever and that means your kids will have it forever and you always have that and I don't know I kind of like this somebody's to steal my idea I should edit this out. But I'd love to do it because I, I, I love having conversations with people. I always get, I'll get done with a lunch anytime, not anytime, but like 99% of the time, somebody I didn't know. And then I'll just sit there and I want to bullshit with them. God, I really enjoy doing this. I really enjoy just bullshitting with people. Um, so I don't know. Who knows? But uh, I, I think I would have my dad on. That might happen soon. I don't know. He might not want to do it. He might go, Timmy, I don't want to do that shit. I don't know. Nobody wants to hear from me the hell are you doing god can't you get somebody else could be that or it could be honored and then he could wind up getting emotional he gets emotional um and i don't i don't know if i i don't know and then you know it's if somebody doesn't like any of the other podcasts i've done this one any of the interviews and they rip me or they rip the guest or they rip the format or whatever fine but like a shot at the family, that's, 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 that's tougher to turn the other cheek on. So like if people said, or my dad said something that was not considered to be whatever. Uh, I'm not talking about like, oh God, we can't uh, have him come on because he's going to say something offensive. Not that, but just something where somebody's like, God, he said that. That came off the wrong way. That would, that would bother me. Tim, you said something and you sounded like an asshole. That's fine. I've heard that for 20 years. Say it about somebody I, I love. That's a different ball games. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think on all of this, actually? Team McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Because, um, yeah, man, I don't know. Like I, It just, just hit me as I'm sitting here just wandering. If somebody could say, hey, you know, I know you haven't, your grandfather passed away in 96. But we interviewed him, um, you know, in 78, and we have the audio. Would you be interested? Oh, my God. I'd stop everything. And I'd just listen. First, I'd be great to hear his voice. But secondly, I'd love to hear his story. So I don't know. And again, it's not like, it's not like he was, you know, in the public eye. Um, or my, my dad's dad. Just love to hear his story. What were things like? So I don't know, to be able to do that for people and give them themselves that archive for the present, not just like, you know, if and when the person passes away down the road for grandkids or any of that, it's just, you know, you have that. And maybe it's a conversation that, you know, like I would have, which is weird, maybe this is a flaw probably is a flaw or maybe a lot of you are like yeah I can absolutely relate to this uh I would have a better and more insightful conversation about my dad's life um or another relative's life in the studio than I would if we were just sitting around bullshitting 
you know, um, like, cause, cause I would ask about like historical things. I'm not talking about like, where were you, you know, when, you know, JFK was shot. Um, I'm just talking about how life was then that stuff, uh, that that's the stuff I'm talking about and, and choices and you know, how different things were, how things have changed. What's better. I, I've, I'll tell you this and I've said it and I'm going to continue to say, it's like I, I talked about in, in the first part of the podcast with young people and the importance of young people in St. Louis. I was saying that on the radio when I was a young person. And so I think understandably people were listening to it and going, yeah, I mean, you're speaking from a biased perspective. Well, now I'm not a young person. And so uh, to still be advocating for young people and the importance of young people wanting to either stay here or move here to the, to the region uh, speaks to that I meant it when I said it. It doesn't change just on whatever age range I'm in. Okay, on the other side of it, the young, the old, I feel like talking to somebody who is older who has been there is just the greatest value. And I feel like for whatever reason, I don't know what this is about. And I don't know if this has been going on forever, if it's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, but the young, like old people get like kind of pushed aside and I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, they might not be able to, you know, physically do what they could do 10, 20 years ago. Fine. But they have lived it. They have been to the destination that we are all hopefully going to. And I want to hear their perspectives because some of the things that I love reading, and again, it's kind of morbid, but I don't, I don't know. I think it's helpful, um, is, uh, is that like the, the, the things that people say when they're on their deathbeds, not like I, you know, they're, they're about to pass away and I see your grandma here or holy shit, you know, not that, but like like the, the clarity that comes with, okay, I know what's coming and here is what I think in this moment. Cause now I know what would I have done? And therefore I can pass that along to you. And I recall in Joe Buck's book, him talking about how, when he, I think, I think it was, he built this big house. I don't know when he did it. Um, well, it had to be before 2002, um, because his dad was kind of busting his balls about building this big house and, uh, and was saying, you know, you don't need all this and all that stuff. And, and then, you know, a couple of years later, his dad's clearly not leaving barns and it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be the last place and the last room he's ever in. And he says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing Joe's book here. But uh, enjoy it, because when you're here, as in on your deathbed, it's all too it's all too late, you know. So enjoy it, and I think there's a lot of value to it. It's like that. Uh, I see it a lot. I'm sure you've seen it as well. It's like that the dude's cutting his grass. It's a hot summer afternoon, and uh, and his daughter goes, Dan, can you take me over to Jessica's? And he's like, oh, and he's the dad who's just clearly not getting the job done in his mind. And then the voiceover comes on and says something along the lines of uh, Northwestern Mutual. We're here for you, you know, for your retirement. But also we're here for you 
So you enjoy enjoy them, as in your kids, before they move out. Kind of like, and then he, he's building a pool. That's the whole thing. Now, of course, there's financial responsibility that comes in. So I'm not just saying, hey, everybody needs to build a pool now because you have kids and you're going to dread when they move out. Or maybe you're really looking forward to them moving out. I don't know. But the, the, the premise is to not delay happiness. That's that's what I'm saying. But again, it's it's not it's not an all or nothing proposition. But you know, it's like I talk about with uh, the Plowhawk and I were talking about this during a commercial break today. And I don't even know how the hell we were. Oh, I think it was Caller Ellen who called in and said she kind of regrets getting a dog. Now, Caller Ellen, I believe, is in her fifties, and she said she got the dog in her late forties. She does not have kids. Don't believe she's been married. And so for the first 40 some odd years of her life, all she's had to know, especially since like, you know, getting into the the workforce, is she can pretty much do what she wants to do without having to go, oh, who's going to watch our kids or who's going to watch our dog? And so the regret wasn't, I don't like the dog. She said, I love the dog and I do anything for the dog, but but I also now am experiencing things that I didn't have to experience before. And that's what I regret. That was on me that I did that because I was comfortable with, with having the freedom. And then that changes. And she said, and it's for a dog, not for a person. So it's, that's the difference. Um, although there are plenty of people who, who love their dogs just as much, if not more. So um, anyway, the Plowhawk and I got into I said, I think one of the reasons why I am such a happy father and just love it um, is because, and it wasn't, again, it wasn't strategically, is because I, um, how old was I, 40? When Jameson was born, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, again, it wasn't mapped out this way. And there's there's certainly downside that comes with having a child, your first child when when you're 40. But for me... I really enjoyed the hell out of my 30s in particular. Certainly there were some there were some rough spots with having to deal with some bullshit with regard to radio um, over the decade. That was absolutely the case. But man, I mean, I enjoyed it. And I kind of feel like I, I, you know, I don't want to say got it out of my system at all, but uh, I enjoyed the ability to, to have that fun. Um, and the Plowick was saying, you have a lot of friends who like had their first baby when they were 22 and they resented the baby because of it. Um, so, you know, I mean, 20, there's a big difference. Wide Delta on 22 and 40, but that stood, that stood out to me. Um, so anyway, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about delaying happiness and then also getting to experience things. Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. Can't emphasize enough how important it is to have a a financial advisor, but then it's not just any financial advisor. It's somebody who who knows but cares. Plenty of people can know but cares, and Mark Hanna helps everyday people every day get their finances organized. You can call him at 314-889-0503. That's 314-889-0503, or go online to evergreenstl.com. His name is Mark Hanna. He is with Evergreen Wealth Strategies, 
And I can tell you from getting to know Mark here over the last year that this is a first-class person who has your best interests at heart. And just calling him at 314-889-0503 is going to make you feel better and you're on the right track. Mark Hanna, Evergreen Wealth Strategies, 314-889-0503 or go online at evergreenstl.com. All right, let's turn our attention to the TMA fan page questions. Remember, you can always email in your questions, tmckernan at insidestl.com, or you can post them on the TMA fan page and the questions from the audience thread. Subscribe to the podcast, support the sponsors, be a part of the podcast with your questions. Every week with questions from the audience. Let's take a gander here. Uh, This is in reference to last week's interview. Lewis Reed, president of the Board of Aldermen, who was our guest last week, said something on your pod that stuck with me when discussing how younger folks are unwilling to compromise, specifically when he mentioned that they have to get all of what they want or it's a loss. Do you think that we're so deep down the path of polarization that future generations will not know how to compromise? On the contrary, do you believe that the next wave of kids coming out of school will be jaded watching, quote, adults act like farm animals and take it back in a civil direction? Great question, Brett. Um, well, let's start with with uh, with your initial statement regarding what uh, Lewis Reed said. Um, I think I could be wrong, but I think what he was referencing in the podcast was younger members of the board of aldermen. I could be wrong on that because if he's just talking about younger people in general, um, I would disagree uh, because I think you can look to Washington, D.C. and see a lack of compromise. Uh, I would imagine you could do this around the country, um, but certainly in Washington, D.C. So it's a cause and effect thing. I think the reason why you don't see compromise nationally at the federal level is um, they're giving the people what they want. They're giving if 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 the people wanted compromise, they'd be voted out. So it's dig in. Don't compromise. Even though people say they want compromise, uh, that's not necessarily what is what is being shown in, in the ballot boxes. So that's one issue. It's like, what, as I say, oftentimes people complained in November 2016 about the choices for president, at least from the main two parties. And while I'm sure plenty of people did not support one or the other during the, the primary process, uh, clearly millions did. And so therefore, the people, the majority of the people got what they wanted. So in this case, I think that is part of it. I, th- I think the core issue I really do. I think it actually can be boiled down to the core issue is part of the population's getting its information from essentially one place. And when I say one place, I mean one side. And the other part of the informa- people, a population is getting their information from another side, so to speak. So when the two interact, as in somebody who's getting information from one side interacts with somebody who's getting information from the other side, they look at the other one like they're crazy because they're operating off of a set of facts, quote unquote, that are foreign and in the mind of the other person, not true. And so how can you have a conversation when you're not dealing with what you believe to be the same facts? So let's break it down to baseball. Man, 
I really don't think it would be a wise move for the Cardinals to sign Marcelo Zuna to a five-year, $120 million deal. I don't know. I'm just throwing something out arbitrarily here. Please don't uh, break down the math on the thing, okay? Uh, but that's where I am. And, and you're sitting there going, well, hold on a second. I see that he hit 52 home runs and had 130 RBIs. And I'm going, well, I have right here that he hit 30 home runs and missed, you know, part of the season. I What, you know, how can we have a conversation based on? And that, while it sounds simplistic, I think at the core is 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 an issue that uh, that 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 can't be overcome at this moment, and I don't feel like it gets enough attention because in order for it to be given attention, it would have to be provided by the very outlets that are practicing it. So they'd be calling themselves out for the business model, but I really do believe that's the that, that's the core issue. I really do. Um, so with that said, with regard to how our children, how our grandchildren will um, view compromise. I don't, I, anytime this kind of topic comes up, um, I, I, I say, I say what I think, which is it's going to take something probably tragic to bring the polarized American population back together um and and maybe i'm wrong on that but i'm telling you as i'm recording this you know we are essentially a year away from uh, election day which is a day that has been circled for people around this country um at this point for three years and um and what takes place not only on that day potentially the days leading up to it, but specifically that day. And then the day after will be signature moments in this country's history, uh, more so than previous elections and days after uh, previous elections. Certainly there are, of course, exceptions. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we have, we have an example within the last 20 years with uh, what happened in the 2000 election and how that played out for months. But um, I'm talking about the impact and then where it goes and it's 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 you know i was reading an article earlier today this is this is another everything's always just a digression um uh new york times oh my god liberal new york times uh and it's data so it's it's not opinion pieces if i get into opinion pieces i uh i i'm out um but uh, let me pull it up because I had it up uh, and I was reading it earlier. That and I thought, and I remember thinking this in 2016. But when you read or see, take whatever, and I, and I don't think it. I, I don't think this stuff has the proverbial bias. Um, the poll numbers, and there are a bunch of different places doing polling on the whether it's President Trump's approval rating uh, or who who has a higher chance of beating him in 2020 they're national polls and when it gets down to november 2020 it, it's it's irrelevant why do you say it's irrelevant well when i lay it out you'll be like oh and plenty of you probably already know where i'm going with this well let, let's just start with this 
Which way do you think the Electoral College is going to look when California's uh, color goes up? Do you think it's going to be red or blue? Do you think it even matters what goes on between now and uh, November of 2020? And what do you think it's going to look like in take your pick of damn near every southern state? Damn near every Midwestern state. We, we can already color most of them in with the exception of the ones that really determined the election last year. And so that is where the data that I read from this article today in the New York Times stood out to me. Because while nationally, like the popular vote, uh, Donald Trump may be losing to Joe Biden and maybe neck and neck with Elizabeth Warren, and they also included Bernie Sanders, whereas I, I just don't think that's live. Uh, and by that, I mean, I don't think that is a chance. Um, I would include Pete Buttigieg in here instead of Bernie Sanders. Um, but with that, and I, I don't know how that's overlooked, but okay, maybe maybe I'm off the mark on this, um, is that what matters is how are these polls looking? What are these approval rankings in? And how are these polls for Biden versus Trump and uh, Sanders versus Trump and Warren versus Trump in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Wisconsin. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's what's going to determine the election. I mean, you can talk all you want wherever you are. If you're not one of those states, odds are it just will not matter. Now, whether one likes the system or not is not necessarily what I'm discussing here. What I'm saying is get poll numbers from those states. And when you get poll numbers from those states, um, that's what actually matters. So um, in reading from this article in the New York Times, again, this is dated today, November, as I'm recording this, November 4th, 2019, across the six closest states that went Republican in 2016, President Trump trails Joe Biden by an average of two points among registered voters, but stays within the margin of error. Mr. Trump leads Elizabeth Warren by two points among registered voters, the same margin as his win over Hillary Clinton in these states three years ago. The poll showed Bernie Sanders deadlocked with a president among registered voters, but trailing among likely voters. The results suggest that Ms. Warren who has emerged as a frontrunner for the Democratic nomination, might face a number of obstacles in her pursuit of the presidency. The poll supports concerns among some Democrats that her ideology and gender. I'm surprised to read that. I'm being serious when I say that I'm surprised to read that, including the fraught question of likability, and I'm even more surprised by that, could hobble her candidacy among a crucial sliver of the electorate. And not only does she underperform her rivals, but the poll also suggests that the race could be close enough for the difference to be decisive. Um, in the national polls, Mr. Trump's political standing has appeared to be in grave danger. His approval ratings have long been in the low 40s, and he trails Mr. Biden by almost nine points in a national polling average. But... This is what I was talking about at the beginning. As the 2016 race showed, the story is quite different in the states that can be battlegrounds. Um, Democrats would probably need to win three of the six states that I listed earlier, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Wisconsin, to win the White House, assuming other states voted as they did in 2016. Now, it's an outcome that's not at all assured, as they point out. And uh, this New York Times results... 
Uh, this poll and other data suggests that the president's advantage in the Electoral College relative to the nation as a whole remains intact or has even grown since 2016, raising the possibility that the Republicans could, for the third time in the past six elections, win the presidency while losing the popular vote. So that gets me into um, something that I, th- I feel like that's all that matters. I mean, it's I guess it's interesting to see, take your pick of whatever polling data as far as national goes, but it doesn't matter. It's not what determines the outcome. You know, who gets more hits in a baseball game does not determine who wins the ball game. It's who gets more runs, for those of you unfamiliar. So that's an important distinction. I remember thinking that in, in just in, in November 2016, though, I just thought it was going to be a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton was going to win. But anytime I would see the polls before November 2016, I think, okay, it's great. You know, when, who cares? That's national. What, what are the states looking like? Because that's what matters. So pay attention to that if you're really paying attention to any of this. But that, that's, that's what matters. Um, so going back to uh, pol- politicians disagreeing and lack of compromise and the people getting who the people want, um, gentleman by the name of EJ posts under Brett's question, Random theory, but I think a portion of the inability to compromise could come from the fact that most families have two children nowadays, as opposed to our parents and grandparents' generations with three, four, five kids when you were forced to compromise. Um, It's interesting, again, but that would be saying that there's a lack of compromise and it's limited to younger people. And I'm just, you know, that's building off Lewis Reed's premise and then interpreting it as he meant younger people. And I think he meant younger people in the... uh, in the board of aldermen, or and by that I even mean not even necessarily younger per se, so much as just not as much experience. Because what um, Jack Danforth wrote uh, was that, and this is 13 years ago, is a lack of compromise is is causing Washington to um, experience gridlock, and uh, and he cited religion as being a major reason for that. If you are on the side of God, how can you possibly compromise God's will, being a very nutshell version of what he wrote, um, and saying that is a real problem because there are people who actually think they are on the side of God based on what political party they're in. So you kind of have a a tough time compromising if you think you're on the side of God. Uh, And again, this is coming from a gentleman who is a minister. So with regard to this, I don't think that's the premise. Um, Now, taking it just for the sake of taking it and running with it, I don't know on that. Um, you know, at this moment, I am uh, the father of an only child. My wife and I only have one child. We have no idea if we'll have more. I think we'd both like to, uh, for those of you doing a uh, People magazine feature on me. But um, we didn't. We were told we weren't going to be able to have one. So the fact that we have one was kind of an upset. Therefore, having two would be uh, seemingly mathematically unlikely, but who knows. Um, but uh, either way, we're thrilled that we were able to just have one. But um, it's something I'm cognizant of. My wife's an only child. I'm the oldest of four. Um, But my sister is uh, close to 14 years younger than me. Um, And so our interaction, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, when she was, you know, uh, you know, at a point where she was, you know, five, six, seven years old, I was already in college and not living in the house. So, um, you know, I, I think that there may be something to that, but I I think the bigger issue is more about people, again, going back to um, 
getting information that is the opposite or is not consistent with or the way stories are presented than the people who are on the other side. And I watch it and I see it and it drives me up the wall so I kind of turn away from it. Like there are, t- I'll tell you this, not that this is really that fascinating, but I know that it goes on. If there's breaking news at night and I want to get the latest and, and the networks are not breaking into programming and I flip on a network and you see one of your standard kind of opinion shapers, like the, the, like the smug, and it doesn't matter which one we're on here, like just like kind of like mocking and shitting on the the person from the quote unquote other side is again these are you know I mean the ship sailed on these being news outlets a while ago but you know that's I guess I suppose what I still in my mind would think they are but I didn't realize they're not um, I can't watch it like I'll see certain faces pop up um, and I I it's, uh, Tucker Carlson Sean Hannity uh, and uh, Don Lemon, those are those are the those are the three. I can't. So it's not just left or it's not just right. Those are the three. Uh, and I'm just like, I, it doesn't matter what's going on. I realize. I think the the Fox News ones are not live. Maybe they are. I don't know. As I said, I'm not a loyal viewer. I'm pretty sure Don Lemon is live, and I just can't do it. It's like this. I don't know. I mean, but it's wor- again. We're get, the people are getting what they want. But God, I just, you know, and I, uh, I'm going to go down into a, into the weeds if I start going off on this tangent, especially when all you asked was a pretty simple question regarding what Lewis Reed said. So I'm going to try to pump the brakes on it, but it, it, it tilts me because I think it's, because I re, I truly believe it is the root of the problems. I truly believe it. And I do not believe, for example, that this is Fox News's fault only. I do believe that there was a conscious effort 20 plus years ago to balance it out in their minds or create a business model that would um, bring people to the table who felt like, if you know, it was the byproduct, I think, of the Bill Clinton era, felt like everything was um, being spun from a left standpoint. And then I think now it's just been exacerbated on both sides. I think CNN saw Fox News' business model for the Obama era, and now we're just implementing uh, a similar strategy for the, uh, for the Trump era. So either way, the point being, if you're getting your set of facts from one place and I'm getting my set of facts from another place and the facts we are given are not consistent, it's going to be very difficult for us to find, as the cat would say, common ground to agree to disagree on or to even agree on. And that's the core issue. So therefore, it makes compromise difficult. It's a long-winded way of saying misinformation, disinformation, manipulation of information makes compromise difficult because somebody on the other side is looking at, what in the hell are you talking about? Um, you know, and it's And I also think... I also think, and I haven't had anybody really say this, not to say it hasn't been said, but I'm just trying to think about it in, in podcast interviews, and maybe it has been said. Um, but that if you're on the other side, that, that it's not like you even understand or that you go, yeah, these are good people, we just disagree. You know, like John McCain's famous line during the 2008 presidential election where a woman stood up and said, well, I'm really worried about Barack Obama because he's a, you know, if she said Muslim or Arab and 
you can't trust him. And, and he took the microphone away from her and said, no, no, ma'am. No, no. He's a good man. Loves his family. We just happen to have a number of di- di- disagreements regarding which way we should take this country. I just thought it was one of the most honorable moments. Um, I feel like that is oftentimes, not even oftentimes, I don't even know if it exists. I know it has to, but you just don't see much of it. Um, so I don't know. So that's that. That's what I that, that's what I think the root of the co- compromise issue is is on that. Um, I don't know. I'd like to follow up with Lewis Reed on that and see what he was talking about because I think that it's, I don't think this is a young versus old thing at all. All right. Next up is this question from uh, Matthew. Some may know him as Matt who bowls at Hanks. Uh, would you support the NFL coming back to St. Louis? I'd like to see the city not give the cartel another damn dime. And I surely don't want them to profit off us again after what happened. But I can't help but think it would be still be pretty cool to have football here again. Tough spot. So those of you listening um, might notice the audio has changed from uh, one sound to another sound. Why is that? Through the magic of editing, Gangster Pete has taken what I recorded on Monday for questions from the audience And now I'm recording this part on Wednesday. Why, you might ask? Well, because things changed between Monday and Wednesday. And I wanted to have the most updated questions from the audience answers as possible. And, of course, what happened was you had uh, Vinny Bonsignore's report in The Athletic that the Chargers were considering um, London and the NFL would support them if they wanted to move from Los Angeles to London. And then we had Benjamin Albright, who really got the whole Chargers in St. Louis thing going 10 months ago, uh, tweeting that the uh, report from Vinny was outstanding and that the league is considering London and St. Louis. And so then we had Benjamin Albright on the, the radio program yesterday, yesterday being Tuesday, and uh, and he said that he would consider 10 years from now the most likely landing spot for the Chargers, if it is not Los Angeles, and the top tier, it would be St. Louis. Then it would be London, a distant second, and then at the very bottom, San Antonio. Um, So, as you can imagine, that got people going again. Then you have Dean Spanos. And uh, Dean Spanos called reporters over before the Chargers practice on Tuesday and uh, was very vivid in his... Um, rejection of Bonsignori's story saying it's total fucking bullshit. Okay. We're not going to London. We're not going anywhere. We're playing in Los Angeles. This is our home. This is where I'm planning to be for a long fucking time period. So that didn't leave much to, uh, to interpret with that all said, what is all of this about? That's how I view this. Okay. So I'm going to go in because I, I posted a little bit on the TMA fan page. Like I'm talking like two sentences when I saw that quote. Um, but I'll elaborate here as the uh, podcast format allows me to do. Why is Spano so banty? Because that's not the way um, he usually speaks in public from re- reading reporters uh, and people who know him on Twitter yesterday after that quote made its way to the front page of ESPN.com and all over social media. 
Uh, he's, he talks like that, kind of like I talk like that, but then when we're in front of a microphone where you're, you're playing by the FCC rules, you, you filter it. So he was pissed off. Well, why was he pissed off? He's pissed off because he, in my opinion, feels like that report have you found your skin's true match? True to you and your skin? When you can't tell where your foundation and ends and your skin begins, that's a true match. L'Oreal's true well match blends seamlessly into skin for a true to you finish in 45 shades. That's what I think. Find your true match no one from L'Oreal Paris. Otherwise, that's what I think. Um, I can tell you um, that, uh, that they had a stadium tour uh, within the last couple of days and the Spanos family was present in Los Angeles. Um, I can tell you that they have, uh, nine figures in PSLs. Uh, and by that, I mean in dollars, um, for the chargers in the new stadium that's set to open next year. Now it's not what they were hoping or what they initially projected, which was in the 400 million, but still it's there. So why, was this report published? And I'm not talking about Vinny Bonsignore. There's not a doubt in my mind that he was given quotes and information that led to him writing, as he called it, an exclusive. So the question is, why? Why? See, that's, that's what we've got here. Why did Benjamin Albright come on our show and say he still thinks it's a 33% chance that the Chargers move to St. Louis? Uh, why does he put St. Louis and uh, Los Angeles at, at the top, but then London and, and San Antonio in the mix as well? If Dean Spanos is saying it's total fucking bullshit, okay, we're not going to London, we're not going anywhere, we're playing in Los Angeles, this is our home, this is where I'm planning to be for a long fucking time, period. And then you had the Chargers social media account, their Twitter account, tweeting out a scene from The Wolf of Wall Street with uh, DiCaprio's Jordan Balfort when he was supposedly about to resign in front of his staff who loved him saying, I'm not fucking going anywhere. I'm not fucking going anywhere. My interpretation, what do I think it is? I think Spanos thinks that it was people tied to the Rams and or Legend Sports, which is Jerry Jones' company, which handles much of the Ram sponsorships and uh, business in Southern California, that is putting this out there. And he is pissed off. Didn't like the guy going in, the guy being crocky. Felt like he had to do it. Whether those in San Diego agree with that or not, that is my perspective from the outside, but I also know St. Louisans get pissed off when they hear the perspective from people who didn't really live through what we lived through over the last seven years, I suppose, with regard to the Rams, who just kind of felt like, oh, it was a natural homecoming for the Rams to go back to Los Angeles and don't know anything about what we experienced here. I'm sure many people in San Diego feel like what really happened there is not the story that's being told nationally. But with that said, I think we can all agree, San Diego and St. Louis, that uh, Dean Spanos was not a fan of Stan Kroenke. And so th- now you have this inconvenient marriage that was kind of uh, forced, and uh, and Spanos is pissed off because Kroenke wants him out. Now, Kroenke isn't saying he wants him out, but that's what I think is going on. 
And so that's why he called reporters over before practice. I can't imagine that's something that Dean Spanos has done a whole lot of. But he wanted to respond to that story. So what's going on and how it impacts St. Louis? Does that just essentially open and close the case right there? No. It doesn't. Because the whole thing that I think is even more prominent in this, but certainly isn't going to get the attention of most people. I don't even know if I've seen it. I have. There was an article about it here recently uh, in a national publication about the lawsuit from St. Louis that the NFL is having a really tough time navigating. Um, In uh, talking with a couple of sources yesterday, uh following up on what Benjamin Albright said regarding um, this lawsuit, which he kept going back to uh, over and over and over again. Uh, He said, the NFL is a bit taken aback by the success St. Louis continues to have as they win each appeal. The NFL does not want to have to go through discovery. They don't want to be embarrassed and they don't want to deal with antitrust issues. Um, So you have that element. Um, in speaking with another source, um, Albright, of course, being on the radio, this one not on the radio, and um, a couple of people I spoke with yesterday. Let me take a look at my uh, news and notes here on this. Um, and that is there is some confusion in the NFL offices. I would imagine this would also include Kroenke, but this is an NFL thing. I mean, people think about Kroenke, understandably, because he is the ace of spades, so to speak. But uh, there's there's more to it than that. It's the NFL, and um, and they are surprised that their high-priced attorneys can't make this go away, and it's driving them up the wall. Um, let me see what I got. Uh, I think there's a feeling of incredulousness on the NFL side, that their high-priced attorneys are losing to a small team of persistent ankle biters. It just keeps happening. Uh, and then, uh, in uh, and also uh, speaking with somebody who is in California and asking about the antitrust issues, uh, saying that that is actually more paramount in this whole thing at this moment for the NFL. They said, I would, I would say that's fair. And so that's the thing that... That you listen, I get it. It's not as t- titillating. I, if I weren't, you know, I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but so just enamored with <laughs> feeling like I know there is this huge story that is bubbling beneath the surface that could gain national attention. That really, the 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 chapters of the book over the last God, I don't even know, decade have been leading up to, to the point that it could just absolutely erupt. Um, that's what gets me going. But I also understand if you're just a casual observer, what are you going to pay attention to? Well, if you're in St. Louis, it's, are we going to get another team? Is it going to be the chargers and where the hell are they going to play and who's going to own it? And if it's national, you're going, man, I watched the chargers beat the hell out of the Packers on Sunday, but there were, 29,000 Packer fans there and the Packers linebackers were encouraging the crowd to get loud in a game, not in Wisconsin, but in Carson, California, what the hell's going on there? And then you have an article. I mean, this one, the Bonsignor's article was not like a, a paragraph. 
I mean, that was a big article with multiple people quoted and then multiple sources quoted. So it's, you're going, okay, what's going on? That's why I always found the story to be so fascinating because there, there are angles um, and people are, people are speaking not necessarily to advance information to reporters, but to use reporters as conduits to the public to advance agendas. There's a difference. There's a difference. You know, it's one thing to leak statements or information. There's another thing to leak agendas, and that's what you have going on here. And, and that's why I can't, um, can't get enough of following it just because it is something else to watch. Uh, you know, essentially two, two roommates, um, one who is a tenant of the other, uh, fighting with his landlord. And that's what you have with Kroenke and Spanos. But I don't know if people necessarily see it that way, but that's how I viewed that. That's why Dean Spanos was so pissed off yesterday because he's like, God damn it. Here he goes again. Even though I don't believe it was Kroenke who was the one who talked to Bonsignore just out of logic. Um, I think it was other people with the Rams. So with that said, Matt, who bowls at Hanks, you asked a question that was as benign as the day is long when you posted it. And then all of a sudden you have this stuff happen over the last 48 hours, not even 48 hours, not even 36 hours, actually. So what is the question? The question that started this all, would you support the NFL coming back to St. Louis? I'd like to see the city not give the cartel another damn dime, and I surely don't want them to profit off us again after what happened, but I can't help but think it would still be pretty cool to have another football team here again. It's a tough spot. So I posed the question after the Albright interview yesterday um, on Twitter, and it now has 8,696 votes, asking people, uh, here's the here's the verbiage, so there's nothing left to interpretation, if the Chargers were to move to St. Louis, would you support the team? Now, something happened with this poll. Something happened. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a way to track it. Uh, I bet one of you knows, Buck Swope. Um, but when the poll came out, the first, let's see it, because I tweeted it. Less than 90, this is what I tweeted. Less than 90 minutes in, and we have 2,200 votes, with 79% saying they would support the Chargers if they move to St. Louis. Okay, now we have 8,696 votes, and somehow the percentage has gone from 79% to, uh, and I think it actually got up to 80% because at 2,500 votes, but I just didn't tweet an update because uh, the votes were coming in so quickly. It's now dropped somehow 12%, which is a pretty substantial drop when you're considering it had to impact from 80% over 66,000 votes. I'm sure somebody could do the math on that. Uh, I would not be that person, however, that it's now 68% yes, 32% no. So something happened. And I'm not sure if this, I, I would say, well, if this got to Chargers fans, but who, who are they? <laughs> who, who are the Chargers fans that would have, would have skewed this go, oh, there's a poll in St. Louis. First off, the poll doesn't mean a damn thing. It's just kind of what I do every once in a while. I like to get the pulse of the community. Um, but something happened to move it that much. It was kind of weird, but neither here nor there. Um, either way, more than two out of three people say they would. Would I? Yes. The answer is absolutely. I don't even, 
I don't even hesitate on that. Why? Because if it were to happen, if we're to play the hand out, this would be a hell of a lot different than what led to the Rams' arrival here uh, in their first game in St. Louis in 1995, but all that led up to it starting back in the uh, early to mid-90s. And really, the way that all played out was, uh, and, and I really would recommend going back and listening to the interviews with Gene McNary, who was the county executive at the time. He's been a guest on the podcast. And Vince Shamel, who was the mayor at the time. And they still dispute what happened. Because uh, I asked Shamel about what McNary said, and he said that's not true. But McNary said that not only was he ready to build a stadium um, in Earth City, where I gather near where um, Hollywood Casino Amphitheater is, or Riverport, as many call it, um, and also was going to get an NBA team. And he kept saying it was the Spurs, which really surprised me. But, I mean, these are his words. He was in this studio in the chair that I'm sitting in right now. And then he said that Vince Shamel was um, told by the power brokers in the city limits that if you do this, uh, your political career is over. And that's what killed it. And uh, Shamel called McNary and said, let's meet. And they met at the MAC downtown. And that's when it died. And that's when the Cardinals, uh, even though they hadn't left, essentially were about to leave. They might not have known it because that was going to end any chance of them getting a stadium in St. Louis. And then a few years later, you have expansion. And it was supposedly a foregone conclusion that St. Louis would get what wound up going to Carolina and then what wound up going to, and the bigger surprise, Jacksonville. And now you have a building, the Dome, built with no team. So at that point, it's time to bend over and take whatever you can get. And that's how you got the um, the tier clause, as in the first tier uh, clause that allowed the Rams to leave years later when the Dome wasn't even remotely close to uh, one of the first-tier, top-tier stadiums. Um, if anything, you know, I, I haven't seen a game in Buffalo. I've seen a baseball game in Oakland. I haven't seen a football game in Oakland. Um, the, yeah, the, the, that's, where the, that's where the Dome is in the pecking order of stadiums in the NFL, in my experience, and I would gather in those around the NFL, and so that was that. So if St. Louis doesn't have what happened in 87 with the Cardinals and in 92 with expansion, I don't believe they give the top-tier clause to the Rams, which then led to all of this. Why do I bring that up? Because I believe the lawsuit that is going on right now would really be the only reason why there is some consideration for St. Louis getting another team. The question is, how would it play out? would Dean Spanos still own the team? So Dean Spanos might plan on being in Los Angeles for a long fucking time, but that might be because somebody cuts him a check uh, to be in Los Angeles for a long fucking time, as in buying Dean Spanos out or buying a large minority position in the Chargers with the understanding that the Chargers now have to move. Um that's a theory, and it would be a St. Louisan or somebody who would understand that they're building a stadium in St. Louis. But again, who is the thing that you have to pull yourself back from when you start having these conversations is who is going to build the stadium? How is that going to actually play out? How is it going to be funded? How realistic is that? And I don't, I don't have the answer. I can tell you this, that over the last week or two, um, well, it's actually over the last month or so, I had people independent of each other, privately wanting no attention for it, just were more curious about it, 
contacting me and saying, hey, the Taylors are interested in buying land north of Market Street. It's more expensive to buy land north of Market Street, especially in Modot. It's handing them the land where the renderings initially were, which was just directly to the west of Union Station, uh, to the east of where Harry's was, to try to specify it. And uh, what's going on here? And, um, and the theory was they're buying up this land to look at building a stadium that would be big enough to house both an NFL team, 60,000-seat stadium, and then an MLS team. And then I saw the new renderings last week, and they were north of Market Street, so that information was correct. Not that I was surprised. It was too many people with credibility to be, to be BS, but they weren't for a you know 60,000-seat stadium. However, just because renderings change doesn't mean that is the finality of it. Um, so I do think that it's odd that you have Taylor Twellman, who would be in the know, tweeting out a couple of weeks ago, I understand that the NFL basically just offered the Chargers to St. Louis. Uh, you have Benjamin Albright, who has uh, been accurate on the relocation issue before, well before the Rams moved to Los Angeles, saying this and his relationship um, in Denver with the Cronkies, Josh. And, um, and then you have somebody telling Vinny Bonsignore all of this stuff about the Chargers moving to London. And then you have Dean Spanos not just denying it, but calling reporters over to motherfuck the story. There's too much there. But I don't have an answer. I can't, I can't go, okay, I know, that, I know what's going on. They have Queen Jack suited. I can't call out the hand. I can just tell you that something isn't adding up. So to answer the question, Matt, that you posed, yes, I would like to see the NFL back here, and I would further it by saying you don't want to give money to the cartel, and I'm sure many of other people feel that way, but what I'm telling you is if this were to somehow happen, and I am much lower than 33%, like Benjamin Albright says, but I do think something is going on, but if it were to happen, it would be a much different deal and a better one for St. Louis than the one that was put together when uh, they, they moved the Rams here in 1994 to start the 1995 season. So maybe that gives you some peace of mind uh, to hear it that way. So with that said, great question, updated. Now back to different audios. Gangster Pete edits in my answers from Monday to other questions. Uh, let's see. You know, James Carlton of the Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency is my insurance agent. So this is a first-hand endorsement of James Carlton and his staff in Webster Groves. 314-961-4800 or go online at carltoninsurance.net. I think a lot of people just go, okay, well, I've got a guy. I've got a lady. I'm good. I don't really care to talk about insurance. It's something, you know, I'm 25, whatever. And that's fine. I understand. I used to think the same way. And then I go down to my basement on March 30th of 2019 and the basement's flooded and the world changes. It just so happens because my interactions with James have been so positive that my wife and I switched to James Carlton uh, in late 2018. And I'm telling you, if we had not, the odyssey that has been a flooded basement throughout all of this precipitation in St. Louis would have been infinitely more difficult to navigate without somebody as active. And on top of it is James Carlton. His phone number is 314-961-4800, or you can go online at carltoninsurance.net. And even now, he still checks in. You know, I mean, it's 
it's just a different ball game. And even before we had that, which of course was a substantial issue, um, you know, we weren't covered on on something or I had forgotten to make a payment. It wasn't like it was like some monster payment. It was a small payment. But he's like, hey, just so you know, uh, you haven't made this payment. We want to make sure that's taken care of so you're covered. It's just, it's it's just different. It's different in a much better way. And that's why, you know, if, if you ran into me at a, at a bar or restaurant and said, hey, you know, and I have had it happen. Hey, Tim, who's that insurance agent? People email me. And I go, oh, it's James Carlton. Here, let me include him on the on the email. And I know he's going to be on top of it. I don't think twice about it. It's not like I'm like, oh, yeah, let me tell you about him. And then somebody actually wants to follow up. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope he does okay. The best, the absolute best. And you're talking about your biggest investments. So you want to make sure they're taken care of properly. James Carlton and his staff at Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency will certainly do that. 314-961-4800 or go online at carltoninsurance.net. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton State Farm. What is the most awkward TMA interview you've ever been a part of? I bet listeners have a better answer to this than I do. Um, You know, we joke about the Troy Gloss interview um, it's spring training, which would have been, I guess, about a decade and change ago. Uh, he, uh, he just wasn't really into the interview, but I mean, he's fine. He's just a nice guy. He's not really into interviews. God, I mean, there's had, there had to have been interviews where it got kind of contentious. There was one, I think the WWE star's name was Mickey James. And, um, uh, the um, during the course of the interview, Doug discovered <laughs> that she had done naked photos, but I think, I don't know if they were intended to be released. I don't know. Either way, when you do these radio tour interviews, which I'm totally against, because I think they would just make for usually boring interviews and you're on the clock and the person's done like 10 before they get to you and they still have to do 10 after they go through you. I mean, it's just, it's just not good stuff. Um, that there's a PR person listening. And when Doug brought these pictures up, which he did from an innocent standpoint, uh, the PR person goes, okay, that's enough. We're going to have to wrap it up right there. So that was incredibly awkward, entertaining, awkward. I think that might have happened with Elizabeth Berkeley when they said specifically you could have a list. This is uh, Jesse slash from Saved by the Bell slash the star of Showgirls. And she was promoting something. And the PR conversation with whether it was producer Joe or Iggy was she'll come on, but she will not answer questions about Showgirls. And I don't know who asked about Showgirls. Um, I really don't. I suppose it could have been me. I don't think it was, but who knows? doesn't really matter. Right when that was brought up, uh, the PR person jumped on. So we've had that. We've had ones where we've gone long and the PR person jumps on. Um, I see on the fan page they are talking about um, the columnist for the Post-Dispatch, uh, is it Jesus Ortiz, if I'm not mistaken, who was here for a brief time, and I think he is now no longer in St. Louis, and um, and I could be wrong on, uh, but uh, we had him on, and um, I really, you know, I feel like anytime somebody's coming from out of town to St. Louis, it can be tough, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast with the transplants, um, and then I'd already seen some stuff that, you know, had a bigoted tinge to it, 
uh, when it was announced he was going to be the new columnist. And kind of like a, uh, you know, a wrestler or WWE trying to get somebody over, I wanted to have him on our show to just get to know him and hopefully let people know he's just, you know, whatever, new to St. Louis. And, you know, I know he's a baseball guy. And we had him on and uh, in the interview just uh, it was it was different in the sense that uh, I think we only asked three or four questions and he just he just talked. I don't know if he was nervous. I don't know why he would be nervous, but he just talked for like 45 minutes and, um, and it, it didn't, it didn't help the cause, which was unfortunate. I never, I don't even think I ever met him. Um, but, uh, we had him on the show and, uh, that, that all that did was, uh, was increase the, uh, the issues. I think uh, for those who are listening to the interview, just because they're like, wow, this is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, let's see. Golf-related, what's in your bag? So since I didn't play, it's from Danny, since I didn't play for um, 10 years, uh, I had to get new clubs when I started to play in 2016. And 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 my swing in 2016 when I got back into playing was not remotely close to what my swing is now. Anna Marie, we were uh, in Las Vegas for my 40th birthday in 2016. And we we're both at, playing around at Top Golf and taking pictures. Anna Marie was swinging, God bless her, in her uh, in her skirt, and there I am in my jeans, and and I see the swing, and I go, Oh my God, what the fuck is that? That's horrible. But at the time, I'm like, Yeah, I'm getting pretty decent here. Holy shit. That's uh, it was, it was so. I get clubs at that time in 2016 for the way I was swinging the golf club. Well, now my swing's completely different, and the, the you know, playing with some people who are in a, in another realm. Even even if I got really really decent, um, I mean, some of these people just hit the ball. You can't I mean, yeah, that can't be taught uh, so far. And then they're also kind of into equipment because they're, you know, one, two handicaps and uh, or better. And um, they'll look at my clubs and go, what in the hell are these things? Because they were essentially, I don't call them beginner's clubs, but they were clubs for somebody getting back into the game after not playing for 10 years. And I just need new clubs. But the thought process at this time last year was get my swing fixed, which I think for the most part I've improved, but I won't swing a golf club for months now, most likely. First, I have a shoulder injury, and secondly, I'm probably going to be in St. Louis through the winter. Um, so it'll be a whole process of, of rebuilding it, but get the swing right and then get the clubs. And so that was the plan, um, and so that's what I would probably do. But right now I have uh, ping uh Irons, Callaway wedges, uh, ping driver, and three wood, and Callaway hybrid, and uh, Odyssey putter. I believe that's uh, that's that's what I got. So, um, yeah, I don't. I, I am in, I'm in a spot where I uh, I need some new clubs. There's no question. So that's going to be happening uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, long ago, you would make fun of the social media posts of former Rams, Salas and Pettis. Oh my God. I can't even think of their names. And was it Austin Pettis 
when they would retweet compliments after 40-10 losses, did you ever receive blowback from them or the Rams slash Demo for making fun of them? Uh, no. Honest answer on that is no, never. There's really nothing else to say because it's a no, period. Um, and I think I would just, I don't know what I would say to those, but I handled myself differently on Twitter six, seven years ago. Um, just because it, it, when it first came out, you're just like, yeah, I'm just like hanging out with like a few people, you know, who happen to listen to the show. And now it's turning to like you make a statement and can destroy your career. Uh, so I would not do that now. Not because it's just like, I just don't, I just don't really fuck with it much as in Twitter. Uh, and also I don't believe Austin Pettis is catching passes in the league anymore. Um, but yeah, I was, I always thought that was an odd thing to be doing. You lose, uh, and you're retweeting compliments about your day. It'd be bizarre, but nobody from the Rams ever said anything to me about that. Uh, and finally, Timmy recaps, who, uh, tends to have the best questions, uh, or at least week in week out has good questions. Interested to hear if you have any takes or opinions on Deadspin and their recent implosion. The truth on that is I really... I don't. I haven't read Deadspin in so long. Not that I read it regularly, anyway. I'm pausing for a beverage here. Um, that I didn't really know what was going on until I saw it trending, and then people talking about it. Um, so I, th the honest answer is I really don't know much about it. Um, but my my interpretation from reading up on it once I saw it and still feeling like I don't know much about it, is they were bought earlier this year, and a number of their writers enjoyed writing content that was not sports-related, and the VC firm, I believe it was, that bought them, um, wanted them to get away from uh, non-sports-related content, and that caused some backlash amongst the editor, who they parted ways with, and once they parted ways with the editor... Uh, a number of writers got away from it. So I can't speak specifically to the Deadspin situation, but I can kind of answer the question from this perspective. Anytime a newspaper or a media outlet, almost any time, I feel, in the last few years, has either parted ways with someone or shut down or made a substantial number of cuts, there's this kind of um, gathering amongst media people, on-air, writers, whatever, the, like talking about how it's such a shame, and uh, and it is, and the, the people lose their jobs. That's a shame, period. There's, there's, there, there's no, I don't care who it is, somebody I like what they produce or somebody I don't like what they produce because beyond that person, most likely, is a husband, wife, kids, parents, whatever. And that person is now going to be experiencing adversity. So whether it be in, in this field or another field, that's nothing I enjoy. It's just not the way it is for me. Um, then, then you take the, the view of the business of the business. And I feel like that's where the blind spot is. Is there, is there I guess there's a perception that these, these companies are evil and just shutting down just to be mean and, and laying people off just to be mean or cutting salaries just to be mean. And I don't believe that that's what's going on. So because I've been on that side of the desk and I know what I know what it's like. And so when you make cuts, it's almost always mathematically based. 
You'll have exceptions, of course, but almost always mathematically based, financially based. And so if the revenue isn't there, the company's obligation, if it can't turn it around on the top line, on the revenue side, is to make cuts. And so if you're in this business and you think somehow you're going to be the exception to what is impacting damn near everyone and has been for a while now. I mean, I spotted, not that this was brilliant even, uh, local TV. I mean, I think I was late to the party, but some say I was, I was ahead of him. I remember Mike Bush saying it when he was in on the podcast. Local news was going the direction it was going in 2005. I didn't really care for it. It didn't, it didn't pay me as much as radio, and I didn't want to continue to do something where there was really no place for me to go outside of just like kind of holding on. And I think if I would have stayed around for a, if I would have stayed around for five more years, I would have been laid off. Um, and I guess, I don't know, it was in my twenties then I might've gone, man, I got fucked over, but now I see it and I go, yeah, things change. And so what I think the goal has to be is to adapt to, to the change. And if you can't, then you have to adjust, but it's just, it's not personal. More, oftentimes, let me put it this way, it's just financial. But but be, it's it's like we joke about on TMA about somebody loses their job in sports talk radio, and then inevitably there's the column, you know, where they'll talk about how they got fucked over. But that's not it's not <laughs> so <laughs> you know. And so then usually the owner, the general manager of the station, who has something to lose and isn't really interested in engaging in that crap, uh, doesn't say anything or issues a statement and avoids it. And then it makes it look like because they're not saying anything that they have something to hide. And then the owner is the bad guy or the GM's the bad guy. But in reality, it's usually not the case. If you generate revenue, if you're responsible for generating revenue, and you conduct yourself professionally, I don't care what industry you're in, you're going to have a home. And it's kind of that simple. So from afar, I'm saying with regard to, I don't even want to specify to Deadspin, because that, that has some, I gather, some emotion right now. Um, but uh, media as a whole when you see this, oh, what a shame, another paper's getting rid of its staff or another TV station's getting rid of this person. Okay, yeah, I mean, it is. It's, it is a shame, it is. But it's not like, it, the way that's portrayed, at least the way I read it is, oh man, they got fucked over. The, we, we, have to, we have to earn our keep. And I'm not talking about medias, I'm talking just in general. If you don't generate revenue... If your existence on the company's payroll cannot be tied to revenue, you are replaceable. And when I say this sometimes, sometimes I think people look at me like, wow, you're an asshole. And then other times people are like, God, thank you for saying this. I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying it for any reason outside of this is the way that it has been in my experience. That's it. And... So speaking specifically to radio and television, that's that's the game. But I think it's the game in any business. Now, I realize, like, if you're working at the drive through window at, at some place, then, you know, it's probably not your presence isn't going to impact the top line, but they need people to work the drive through window. 
And then if you're, um, you know, a CEO of a business that's losing money, I would imagine the board's going to make a move. If you're in charge of um, programming for a station that relies on ratings and the ratings continue to decline, odds are they're going to make a change there. It impacts revenue. If you are in charge of sales for a station and the sales are declining, they're probably going to make a change. It's not personal. And if you're good, you're going to get a job somewhere else. I'll tell you how you don't get a job somewhere else. You go and you bitch about it and act like you were fucked in a public forum because people pay attention to that stuff. Who wouldn't? It'd be irresponsible to not pay attention to it. I'm telling you, if I, I haven't, I haven't, not, not in, in the management capacity any longer. It's not something that I am even looking for, but I'm telling you, if I were in management and I'm like, oh yeah, I, that person interviewed really well, but holy shit, look what's going on when they're on Twitter. And I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about how they conduct themselves. You know, that. so that's, but, but when it gets down to it, if Deadspin were generating revenue like it expected to when it was purchased, then they wouldn't be messing with it. But it's not something wasn't working. Again, and I don't even know this. This is this is this is just kind of this this is this is economics. This is business. This isn't really tough, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I I looked at that from afar, and I thought, okay, they're 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 chastising their bosses or their boss they're inviting criticism of their advertisers holy shit that that's what that's what pays the bills that's what that's what gets paychecks so i think and, and you know there's value in dissension but i always value the dissension behind closed doors and said respectfully so you know unless somebody then I mean, listen somebody brings it public Different ball game. Now you have, now now that's been made public, but you aren't the one to make it public. If somebody else does okay. Well, now it's on, um, and then you have a choice how you want to handle it. But in this case, like I said, man, the, 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 when it comes to media, um, I just it, you know there are certain things that are thriving. By the way, podcast spending continues to increase across the board. Um, you know, from a um, from the standpoint of specialized programming, such as like a bar stool, clearly thriving, whether one likes it or doesn't like it, it's really not subjective as to whether or not it's thriving. That's objective. The subjective part, whether or not you like the content. Um, so it's not like it's not like media is dying. Certain elements are. Things change. I mean. If you can put Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on the anchor desk on SportsCenter now, and it's not going to have the same impact that it had 20 years ago because people get their news in different ways now. So you adapt and you have to fire some bolts that may not work. But I just, I, I, I get a little, I guess it's, a, I guess I'm hypersensitive to it in some capacity, I guess. I don't even know um, because I have had, now that I think about it, um, people like, well, Tim fucked us. You know, and I'm like, no, okay. I mean, okay. So here's 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 my choice in that spot when I have to make a change with programming. My my choice is, well, I can explain it to everyone, 
And everybody will then understand and pretty much go, oh, okay, I feel like an asshole for saying, Tim, fuck these people. Because what I'm going to do is say, okay, all right, you, unfortunately, but this, I haven't had it happen where people make it public. That's why it's never happened that I've had to come over the top with the information that is the information that matters, which is the revenue. But if you're going to say, Tim, fuck, okay, well, if, if you were bringing in the revenue that you were supposed to bring in, you'd have a show. Period. That's it. That's it. That's on the programming and that's on the sales. That's the game. So that's the way that it works. I don't sit there and I don't think most programming people sit there and go, Ooh, I don't like them. I know they're making us money and I know they conduct themselves professionally around the office and have a following, but I don't like them. So therefore I'm going to get rid of them. That's not the way that it works. So that's what I kind of get irritated by when I see media people bitching about media cuts things have changed so you know so i saw it changing in 2005 and i'm like okay this isn't this isn't happening man this this is not this is a low ceiling and the ceiling's gotten lower since then the days of you know mike bush and zipra zeppa and whoever else you know like in local tv it just didn't happen anymore so and I'm talking about like everybody watching, you know, the Highlight Zone and the Zippo Awards. It's just not happening anymore. So that's what I'm talking about. So, but you can still find ways, and people have found ways to generate revenue and have an impact uh, for their company and be irreplaceable. That's the name of the game, all while ideally conducting yourself professionally and not causing headaches for the station's ownership or management. That's it. And I, I realize saying it like that makes it sound like it, I'm trying to simplify it because the reality is you have to be able to generate revenue. That's the most important element of it. But I, on the other side of it, get irritated with the, oh man, they got fucked or this. And I'm not talking about Deadspin specifically. I'm not even talking about Deadspin at all. But um, I see that anytime somebody gets let go and it's like, yeah, I mean, things change. They have to make changes. That's the business if the revenue isn't there. Um, so anyway, that hopefully gives an answer, even though it wasn't specific to Deadspin. All right, there it is. Uh, questions from the audience in the books. Uh, always uh, grateful for everybody for listening and for sending in their questions. Email T McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Thank you to the HomeLoanExpert.com. Thank you to Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. James Carlton of the Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency, 314-961-4800. And uh, Design Air Heating and Cooling, the number one train dealer in the Midwest, and Johnny Landoff Chevrolet, Highway 270, and the Washington Elizabeth Exit, online at landoff.com, Chevy, find new roads. I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors, we're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.